Well, this morning we finish a sermon series we started in February. Um, One of the things we've seen in this series called The Lord's Prayer and Praise, one of the things we've seen in the Lord's Prayer is the priority that Jesus places on praise. And we said last Sunday, if praise is the foundation of prayer, then how do we do this and what does this look like, especially when we gather every Sunday for worship? This morning, um, I'd like to take a different approach than usual. If you're a regular, uh, you, you might say this sermon feels a little bit different. Uh, this would be the exception to the, the way I normally approach a sermon, which is typically focusing on one main Bible passage. This morning, we're going to do less of that and more of focus on the big picture of why and how we do what we do every Sunday morning. And uh, by the way, this is truly God's timing because the sermon series was mapped out weeks and weeks before we even knew Carl was coming. So uh, we trust that this is God's timing, that He wants uh, Carl and Jenny to hear this somehow and maybe run the other direction, but uh, we'll see how that works out. Um, Let me pray. Lord, worship is about You, and there is none more worthy of praise than you, Lord God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so even as we talk about worship, Lord, give us a fresh glimpse of who you are, high and lifted up, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We give you praise, especially because we know you through Jesus. Amen. First, um, Let's talk about worship as the drama of salvation. Michael Horton, uh, pastor and author, starts his book on worship called A Better Way with this quote from Dorothy Sayers, who's a novelist from the last century. She wrote, Christianity has been having what is known as a bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of men. And the dogma is the drama. I don't know if I missed a sentence as I took off my jacket. (laughs) Um, A friend who occasionally attends a a church uh, near her home once asked me as she was talking about what's going on in our lives and asking, inquiring questions about Grace Redeemer Church, knowing I'm a pastor. She once asked me, why do so many people go to your church? Because all she knew was her little church in the neighborhood with mostly empty pews and hardly any young people at all to speak of. All she knew was showing up every now and then, going through the motions and wondering why so many people here at GRC seem so passionate about showing up regularly, about engaging. And I I said something like this. This was years ago. But my answer went along these lines. People want to give their lives to something that is meaningful. It's something that lasts. And our church doesn't shy away from proclaiming the truth that real purpose and new life can only come through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lives are being changed. People want to worship a God who is real, who rescues broken sinners, who forgives. And the answer I got was, huh, (laughs) because
because there was no reference point. I could have used Dorothy Sayers' language and said, here at GRC, we're all about proclaiming the dogma that is the drama. And that would have been true. We are all about that. We preach and sing and we share life stories about this drama of salvation at the heart of which is the ultimate hero who is God the Son, Jesus. That's what drives what we do every Sunday morning. That's the foundation upon which we stand. That's the inspiration for anything creative we might pull out. If you're looking for a home church, maybe even some of you here this morning, or if you're away from home and, and it's Sunday morning and you, you want to find a, a solid church, whatever that means, what should you look for? I get asked that a lot. Sometimes it's uh, folks in our community moving. Sometimes it's, I'm going to be on this um, road trip for a couple of weeks in this city. Do you know of any churches you could recommend? And I, I usually don't, um, but I usually say something along these lines. Um, what you're looking for should not start with entertainment or, as uh, many people put it, what I'll get out of the worship service. I don't even start with the uh, Presbyterian churches in our denomination in that city unless I know of them. Uh, That's not the most important thing. The most important question should be, does the worship service point you to the, uh, the drama of salvation that is at the center of all of history? Or does it put Christianized pieces together in a Sunday morning experience that makes you feel good? Is that the motive? Nobody would ever say that on a website. In any biblically rooted worship, it should be pretty easy to detect in song and prayer and scripture readings and in the sacraments and in the preaching the core ingredients of this salvation drama which are always humanity's brokenness and the gospel healing that the Father has provided through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son. Those elements are always the same. Death in sin, but life through Jesus' death and resurrection. If you can detect those elements uh, throughout the service, it's a biblical church, more likely than not. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul reminds the church of the heart of the gospel. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he goes on to talk about how the risen Savior appeared to His disciples afterwards. Paul's not saying that nothing else is important. He's not saying that. He is saying this stuff is of most importance. Without it, there is no Christianity. Without it, there's no hope. Without it, there's no life from death. This is it. And he says even, if that's the case, we are to be pitied more than all men. We're sad. Those first things that Paul's talking about shape what biblical worship should look like. We creatures don't just come up with our own way of how we want to worship the Creator. He has revealed to us properly how we should approach Him in worship. We learn through passages like Revelation 4 and 5, which give us a glimpse of heaven's throne around which are heavenly creatures and angelic beings singing 
these songs, one of which we sung. The, the first song um, from Revelation 4 affirms God as holy, almighty, eternal, self-existing. The second song uh, focuses on God as creator. This third song from Revelation 5 praises Jesus whose blood rescued sinners. And the fourth repeats that focus but calls Him the Lamb who was slain. Lamb being one of the richest metaphors from the history of Israel because the people were rescued from slavery in Egypt through the Passover which required every Israelite family to sacrifice a lamb as a substitute for their firstborn son, that he and they might live, might go free. Jesus is the ultimate substitute sacrificial lamb. The most gripping drama of all time is the only basis for true worship. Only this most real story offers hope and life, and fulfillment, and as Revelation puts it, the making new of all things. Secondly, uh, worship. This is us. I've never seen the show. I've heard people talk about it, but I thought it was an apt phrase. This is, this is who we are, worship. Biblical worship, I, I said, is the reenactment of the drama of salvation, but that does not mean that all biblical worship looks the same. We're not saying we have a lock on what it uh, should look like, how you should flow through a a worship service. We've put our worship service together thoughtfully to reflect this drama of salvation, but there's a lot of variety allowed. But this is how we here at GRC reenact this salvation drama. I'll just walk through elements of our worship service, all right? Did you know that there's something called the gathering song? I know about two-thirds of you have never experienced the gathering song. (laughs) It's just a fact. It starts before the worship time, 827-ish, on purpose. It's on purpose. If you're wondering why a song is starting and it's not even 830 or 1115, it's because it's on purpose. And the purpose is to gather you. The purpose is to give you a, um, rather than a buzzer or a, a, you know, a, you know the, the annoying, obnoxious classroom bell that tells you to go on to your next period, we open with a song of praise. And uh, when the, the, the music team kicks it up, you know it's time to come in to prepare your heart to set aside whatever's distracting you. And the worship service, um, the worship leader, I should say, usually a pastor or an elder, starts with preparation after the song. And, and we're still on the on-ramp to worship, as I like to call it. We're not there yet uh, because we, we realize that we shouldn't just casually approach the King of Kings. And so the preparation time, which interacts with the reflection quotes in your bulletin, is intended to give you a theme to focus on. Again, to, to mentally engage, to put aside whatever you're thinking about, the argument in the car, the, your hose that just ran, the, the struggle that is consuming your mind, to put it aside and to focus on one thing that is about God, that then should be succinct. It should be to the point because then worship begins properly with a a prayer of adoration that focuses on God's character and His salvation work. And then the call to worship, which is um, us joining together, inviting one another to draw near to the King, usually through a responsive psalm, a reading from a psalm. 
And then we see uh, sing songs in a section that's labeled praise in your bulletins. The focus is on, again, God, who He is, what He has done, and the songs tend to be more upbeat, our gaze heavenward. But this is what happens. Anytime we focus on God and, and recognize something of His perfection, something of His holiness, what should naturally happen is that we sinful creatures begin to become more aware of how far short we fall. And so that leads us into renewal. The only solution to sin is to admit that it is true of us specifically, to confess it, which is agreeing with God, and then to trust with hope, with faith, that Christ's death has satisfied the penalty for my sin. We pray together in unison, but we trust individually as well as corporately. Um, And the songs that follow tend to be more reflective. We then hear God speak through His Word in the sermon. This isn't just information. This isn't education. This isn't, um, oh, I never knew that. This is God's Word meeting you wherever you are with His authority, with His life-giving message that should prompt us to new commitment. So the sermon is in the section of the service called Commitment. It should prompt us to um, reorient our hearts, calibrate our hearts, as we've been putting it in this sermon. And our response partly includes the offering that then follows the sermon. We sing a final song. We receive the benediction, which is literally a good word from the Lord. I recite Scripture um, that varies. And um, the good word is meant to encourage and strengthen us as we're dismissed, which does not mean we just move on to the rest of life. Church is done. This engagement with God is over, but it means that we take what we've received and we let it overflow from our lives into every other part of life, serving the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Worship gathered, what we do on Sunday mornings, is the fuel, the motivation for worship scattered every other part of life. Lastly, liturgy, the work of the people. For a lot of people, even inside the church, the word liturgy has sort of a stuffy feel to it. Traditional, monotonous, going through the motions kind of ritual. That's what a lot of people associate with ritual, uh, with liturgy. But the word liturgy comes from a, a Greek word, liturgia, which simply means public service or the work of the people. Uh, It has nothing to do with style or traditional elements of a worship service. It has everything to do with the role of those who come as participants in this drama, as those who come to offer service to the king instead of coming to get something out of it, whether that's entertainment or even education. Um, I may have shared this story years back, uh, but a, a while back here in Teaneck, we showed up at a friend's dinner party. Really, it was a food event, as we would think of it. Um, we were excited because they were roasting a whole pig on an outdoor rotating spit. And I'll never forget this memorable moment in my eating career. Uh, we were walking around the side of the house to the backyard, and some relatives of the host greeted us and said to me, oh, you're the guy who's going to carve the pig. 
And in an instant, I went from welcome guest to worker bee. I went from sitting in the dining room at the restaurant to back of the kitchen doing prep work to serve everyone else. I was being asked or expected to offer my labor for the benefit of others. Worship is not a consumer experience where you show up wondering what's for, on the menu, wondering who you're going to see, wondering whether the music and the preaching are going to be good enough to merit you taking an hour and a half of your Sunday morning to show up. That, that's our attitude when we buy something. That's our attitude when we show up at a restaurant. That's our attitude when we pay for a ticket. Worship is not a consumer experience. Worship involves each of us being prepared to come and make an offering of ourselves. Everything that we have and everything that we are, that the king, the audience of one, might be pleased. For the benefit of another is, in worship, for the benefit of God Himself. That's why last week I quickly mentioned one author's comment that gathered worship is not a concert hall, it's more of a banquet hall. And then the author adds, well, it's really less a banquet hall and even more of a potluck because in a potluck, you're expected to bring something. You don't show up empty-handed. You don't show up saying, what's for dinner? Uh, you, you might delight in what other people are bringing, but you bring, themsel- you bring them something from yourself, something from your own efforts. So how can you improve your worship as your work, as your liturgy before the King? Let's walk through some elements of the worship service again. You can come early, not just on time, to prepare for, to prepare for worship, to reflect on the reflection quotes that are in the bulletin for that purpose. They're not for Josh to expound on. They're for you to reflect on. And Josh just brings the focus to those themes to help us consider one aspect of biblical worship before we launch into the, the service itself. And, and if you're just on time, that's okay. But when you hear the gathering song, tell the person you're talking with in the hallway, let's finish this later because the king is waiting for us and we don't want to keep him. Whenever there's a scripture reading or a corporate prayer, participate. Teach your little ones as soon as they're able to read, to participate, to speak out loud these words with the rest of the community of faith because God's Word has power. It has power to transform despair into hope. It has power to transform life, death into life. So speak these words. And as I shared last week, biblical worship is a resounding yes to the Lord Jesus, and it is a defiant no to the values and idols and lies of the world around us. And so speaking these words has a healing effect on our hearts and minds. In song, if God is the audience receiving your offering, does it matter how good your voice is? Does it matter what other people might think of you? If you have this image of yourself and singing in church doesn't fit that image, if you're worried about those things, then you are making worship about you, and it's just not. You're not the audience. God is the audience of one. You may be a secondary audience as you receive the affirmation, the singing, the the words of others around you, but it doesn't start or end with you. God is delighted with your effort 
your work, your liturgy, even if sometimes the words don't reflect where your heart is. Some, sometimes people think, I, I have to absolutely 100% believe what I'm, what I'm singing, otherwise I shouldn't sing. And I would say, you know what? Sometimes singing and affirming spiritual truth can push back doubt and can strengthen faith. I would never hold you to 100% integrity because otherwise, if that were the case, none of us could sing. None of us could open our mouths for more than a word at a time. God's people are expected to sing, as Paul writes in Colossians 3. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Singing in worship, actively participating, is as natural and expected as clapping and cheering at a ball game, where very few of us sit on our hands all game long, dispassionately, not saying or doing anything to root for our teams. How much more does the King of Kings, the audience of one, deserve all of you, emotions and body included? Corporate confession, you identify with the rest of the congregation in admitting your sin. If, if those words don't strike you as meaningful personally to you, perhaps you, you go home and you reflect on these with a healthy self-suspicion because you know that they are true of you. You're not exempt from these sin categories. Somehow, some way, they uh, describe who you are and saying it out loud identifies you with the rest of the congregation in affirming, yes, I need the cleansing blood of Jesus just as much as the next guy. Greeting, handshaking, your genuine interest in another just might be the way God wants to communicate the love of Christ to someone who's lonely, hurting, unsure of whether they made the right decision to show up in church when they have never been or haven't been in in years and years. Your kind word, your genuine interest, your looking them in the eye and asking them their name just might be exactly the balm for their hurting heart that they need. Scripture reading before the sermon, I always give you the page number not this morning because we're looking at the big picture. And I always prompt you to, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue Bibles under the seats in front of you. You probably are sick of hearing me say that, but why do I do that? Because the preaching um, element in the service is not about the person, the man. It's about the God who has written in this Scripture His authoritative words that are inspired, that are life-giving. I want to equip you to open your own Bible at home and find the spiritual truth that we're talking about on Sunday mornings, not to depend on a preacher to tell you what's in here and only half an hour a week. I want you to not focus on um, the potentially interesting or clever or insightful words of a man, but instead to anchor yourself in the authoritative, uniquely authoritative Word of God because God is speaking. As fallible of an instrument as I am, God is speaking. We trust as His Word is lifted up. Bring your Bibles, people. And maybe one day I don't have to say to more than a handful of you who are guests, who don't have a Bible perhaps, to open that blue Bible under the seats in front of you and turn to page 787, as we've been doing for the last three months. My role is to put a spotlight 
on the Word of God, not to exalt myself. And if you leave praising God for His life-giving Word, then I have succeeded in my calling. Offering. It's a gift to the King. It's, it should be thoughtfully prepared and anticipated in order to indicate the priority that you give to the king. You don't show up at a birthday party and pull something out of your pocket, whatever happens to be there, for the honored guest. You prepare, and your planning shows the love and value you place on the relationship. The offering is an act of worship. Some churches don't have an offering. They put a box in the back And I have always affirmed that, no, I want us to physically pass something around. And if you're a guest, if you're not a Christian, if you're checking out our church, we don't want your money. This is not what that's about. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we provide you an opportunity with a past uh, basket. Some of you give online, and that's fine. Don't worry about your self-consciousness if other people are wondering why you never put anything in that basket. But it's an act of worship, and it's properly uh, placed in the worship service itself. One more thought on the role of music in worship. It wouldn't hurt for each of us as we're entering this sanctuary, which isn't a sacred space just because it's called a sanctuary. It's a sacred space because the people of God have gathered to worship Jesus. That's why it's a sanctuary. It wouldn't hurt for us when we walk in to mumble to ourselves every single Sunday, worship is not about me. Worship is not about me. Die to self, live for God, live for others. Each of us, why do I say that? Because each of us brings the power of habit to significant aspects of our lives. And worship is one of those deep parts of life, right? It's not watching TV, it's not throwing a ball in the backyard. It's, it's not uh, doing some of the fun but ordinary and mundane things of life. Worship is one of those deep experiences, and we bring the power of habit to contexts like this. That means you have different backgrounds. Perhaps some of you have powerful spiritual influences that shape the way you think about worship. Maybe you have emotional associations with a style or an instrument, positively or negatively. And if you walk in and mumble to yourself, worship is not about me, you don't allow those strong powers of habit to shape your ability to worship the King. You have preferences. You're welcome to preferences and opinions, but a maturing follower of Christ should be able to worship the King, because it's about Him, with varying styles, with varying instruments or no instruments, with contemporary or traditional, um, with louder or softer, while maintaining those preferences, dying to self and saying, God, this is about you. I might not prefer this. This is not my favorite. But it's not about me. There's a reason for the phrase worship wars. Uh, we've never had one here, thankfully. But uh, the sides tend to be contemporary songs versus hymns. And sometimes the sides are even liturgical versus freeform flow of the service. You have simple, repetitive songs, you have theologically rich hymns with um, dense lyrics. And let me interact with, uh, over a couple of samples, okay? Because the, the rubber needs to meet the road here. Last week, we sang, We Exalt Thee. 
And we said it over and over and over. It's a simple song. It's repetitive. There are only a few words and ideas in the whole song. And some of, some of you might smirk and call it Christianity light. You might roll your eyes inwardly and tolerate the song. But what's interesting is that first song that I put up, uh, the uh, verse from Revelation chapter 4, introduces the, uh, Revelation 4 introduces that song with these words, day and night, they, the angels, never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, how boring. One thought over and over every day. Well, you know what? It's apparently good enough for angels, and they never go tired of it. Perhaps our inability to connect with that is due to our limitations, our finite minds, our selfish powers of habit. They say, I want it the way I want it, and this is not it. And you grin and bear it until it's over, and then you might get a song that you prefer. It's not about you. We would do well to remind ourselves, mumble it to ourselves every time we walk into this room. Not about me. However we're worshiping this day, God, I pray that you are honored and glorified. This morning we sung Good, Good Father. It's a repetitive song. But if you're thinking and singing like a worship worker, at least the chorus is repetitive. The, the, the stanzas are rich. Shouldn't it cause you to marvel if you're oriented in this liturgical way, the work of the people way, right? I have come as, a, uh, as an offerer, not a consumer. Shouldn't it cause you to marvel more deeply at this grace gift that through faith we are privileged to call the King of the universe Abba Father, and He's a good Father, not a tyrannical Father, not an angry unforgiving Father. He's a good Father. We all need to drive that simple truth more deeply into our hearts in worship. Last week, on the other side of the spectrum, we sung, He will hold me fast to Him. Stodgy for some of you. To be tolerated. It's slower. The original lyrics uh, were written by Ada Habershon in the early 1900s. I uh, read up on her a little bit last night. She had no special training, an ordinary woman. She just happened to sit under a couple of pastors named Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody, which is pretty good equipping for any part of life, but especially hymn writing. This song was lost. I can't prove that. I think it's been lost for over 100 years until um, in around 2014, uh, a, a young worship leader found it somewhere, wrote new music, and boom, it's become a favorite in so many churches, and it's one of my favorite songs. And again, it might be too old-fashioned for you, but are you willing to chew on the lyrics long enough to draw out the spiritual nutrition and then find that it actually has a lot of flavor to it? You know, like beef jerky. You, you can't just pop it in and swallow it, you know? Um, you need to pay a little bit more attention to a hymn. You need to pause when you go home and say, what did I just sing? You know, here I raise my Ebenezer. What's my Ebenezer? That's a good, good question to ask and go look it up. You know, we didn't have Google when, when I was a kid. Now, put in Ebenezer and you'll find the meaning uh, in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. 
What does it mean for Jesus to hold you fast? I had a, a short but very interesting conversation with one of my kids. What, what does that mean, hold me fast? Because it's a simple word, right, fast, but it has nothing to do with speed. It has nothing to do with velocity. What does it mean? And, and the, the meaning is more like fasten your seatbelt, right? Because that seatbelt fastens you. It, it holds you fast. It secures you. And the gospel promise that you are affirming to your own heart and to one another when you sing that song is Jesus will never let you go. Though the um, mountains may fall into the heart of the sea, Jesus will hold you fast until He comes at last. Those Those words are like cold water to a parched soul. This morning, last song, uh, John Chang uh, gave us a little briefing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. When I first saw that bulletin, I was like, Advent song? Hmm. (laughs) Um, And if he hadn't said that, um, I wonder if anyone, or if if some of you would have noticed that this was an Advent song, and there's nothing wrong with an Advent song, right? It's talking about the first coming of Jesus, um, a defining event in the life of of the church, in salvation history, it's, it's central to the drama of salvation as we've been talking about it. It's perfectly appropriate, especially because as we talk about during every Advent season, Jesus' first coming points ahead to His second coming. Biblical worship involves reaffirming the foundations of faith past, and biblical worship involves kindling new hope in faith future. Perfect not just a song, not just an Advent song in May, but to ask, why are we doing this? Is a work of the people, liturgy, I've come to make an offering kind of attitude that thoughtfully engages rather than just goes through the motions. We want to be different liturgy. We don't want to be cold and lifeless ritual. We want to be vigorous, active liturgy in the thoughtful engagement. Um, the, the team up here, and uh, when we hire a new director of worship ministries, um, the, the team would love to have you come forward and say, help me understand the lines of that song. And you know what? They might say, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to find out. But to engage thoughtfully is to participate as God's people in this work. We will never be all things to all people. In worship, in preaching, in the, the culture or the style of, of the way we do things, but that's okay if we find unity in diversity. That's okay um, if, like we do with the various ethnicities and national backgrounds that God has mixed into our community, that's okay because we affirm on a regular basis that um, it's not common experiences, it's not common stories, it's not common preferences and tastes that bring us together. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that has purchased sinners for God, Revelation 5, that reconciles sinners to a holy God uh, and sinners to one another and even contemporary singers with hymn lovers. Let's pray. Lord, You are the one worthy of praise. We lift up our hearts, our minds, our bodies to You as an offering, Lord. And so I pray that Your Spirit would prompt us as we leave this place in a few minutes to wonder out loud or to ourselves, 
Was the king pleased with my worship? Did the king find my offering, my sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving acceptable to this day, uh, to him this day? And if not, Lord, send us forth to work at our work of worship that you might be honored and glorified as you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.